Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And yes, we are out of hibernation. Kind of. <laughs> if, sort of, yeah. Kind of. I'm half awake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm here. I've certainly, e- <laughs> I've certainly eaten like a hibernating bear in the last few weeks, but there we go. Uh, so hopefully you'll be listening to this in January and it won't have taken me a month to edit it. <laughs> Again, sorry about that on the last one. I think I've got editing fatigue. But we have a plan on that, but I'll maybe talk about that later. Vic, you've got your... She's not putting it on, by the way, guys, this sexy, husky voice. We decided to try and boost the ratings, haven't we, Vic? Yeah, it, unfortunately, <laughs> it is a issue, a, this long-term issue that is related to the ongoing injury, which I am going to have to have further surgery for, but it's kind of left me with this croaky voice. So this is basically what I sound like now. Yeah, boost the ratings, it's so. fine. Don't know what you mind about. <laughs> You're just jealous, Neil. <laughs> I am. No, I don't know. I've certainly read a study recently, a survey done, and the Essex accent came top of sexiest accents. So Was that yeah. a survey done in Essex? No, it wasn't. It would have been rid the bottom then. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get started. We're not going to do latest sightings, and we're going to skip the news as well, because we, once again, like we did last year, we asked what your wildlife highlights for the year were. And we've had a great response on Twitter and Facebook. We got no responses on Instagram, though, because someone forgot to post it. Sorry. <laughs> so if you're on Instagram, sorry about that. Yeah, let's get cracking with Corvid Crazy Chap, the ever-reliable Shepherd Wells. Uh, he said, hey, Neil and Victoria, not sure I was listening way back in 2020, but I have been ever since. So here goes 2021. He saw a woodchat shrike. Pretty sure that's the one in Essex I went to see, actually. Be All Kids, nine self-found. That's pretty good. Um, unless you're on Victoria's lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and a kingfisher on a local tiny nature reserve and tiny stream. Yeah. And he's probably having more than one, but yeah, you know, oh. it, uh, you wait till you get to mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's always nice to find a kingfisher on a little stream nearby. I did that on the house near where I grew up, and it's, it's more satisfying when you find your own. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, for sure. Next up, mm. we've got Enid Barry, which said it was a very good question. I think seeing the Chalkhill blue butterflies in Kent was their wildlife highlight. And I have to admit, Chalkhill blue butterflies are probably my favourite butterfly. They are stunning. So I'm with you on that one. Yeah, it's a good choice. Good choice. I know Enid. Hello, Enid, by the way. Joe Bartram, who's Joe Bartram one on Twitter, said, I got my first wildlife job. Well done. Good stuff. Oh, working for London Wildlife Trust. Ah, be working with one of our future guests, hopefully. So that's obviously my biggest highlight. But seeing my first sand lizard in Arn was very cool, as was the progress we've been making as a country towards beaver reintroductions and general rewilding. Yep, it all seems to be starting to head that way now, so fingers crossed. Next up, we've got Polly Mayer, Polly MM on Twitter again. And her wildlife highlight has to be becoming enamoured by the willow emerald damselfly. Oh, good choice. She put a lovely picture up as well of one. Frank Sengpel, man, Cactus Frank S on Twitter, said, That's a tough one, but I think my first ever UK purple emperor has it, ahead of a mating pair of adders. Ahead of the adders? No, I'll let him off. <laughs> purple emperors are pretty cool. I'll let him off. My first wasp spider in the UK and, and his annual visit to Scoma. Not jealous of that at all. <laughs> oh, oh, we're big fans of scoma on the show we are we we do love scoma and for more than just the puffins there's so much more to scoma than puffins oh, yeah. next up we've got matt duke he said seeing adders for the first time so yeah that's great news matt i can't believe that 
you know it's taking this long to see them but i know that you're up in scotland now so probably not so easy to see but great wildlife highlight i think yeah, i remember matt tweeting about that and been surprised he hadn't seen them already but it took me to age 24 and i live in essex has got quite a few good spots well not as many as i had but there we go annie sutcliffe has said seeing both my 2021 bucket list species osa minor bicolor which i think that's the one that nests in bee shell uh, bee shells snail shells <laughs> bee shells god oh, it's definitely a good start to the year yeah snail shells i believe and oh and the duke of burgundy butterfly now that is a that is a good butterfly that is a beautiful butterfly lovely butterfly uh, next up, we've got Ellie and Ben from the Wildlife Garden podcast. Uh, they had the best days birding, bird watching ever. It was on the 1st of January, though, so that doesn't really count. That wasn't in 2022. They did say, though, guess we'll have to wait until the end of the year to let you know what we saw. Cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps go on their podcast to find out what they saw. <laughs> I know what you're up I to, I think <laughs> it's got something to do with an owl because I did see that reply and it had a little emoji of an owl. Oh, so I think it might have been an owl. Maybe a shorted owl. Digby Rogers, friend of both of ours, he said, helping a pupil with special education needs, successfully healing a new tree sapling with the wheel of a wheelchair. Oh, that sounds excellent. Nice one, Digby. Part of the Enfield Chase Restoration Project in North London. Planting 50,000 trees is something you can still do during the pandemic. That's very true. It's very true. It certainly is. Um, and then last up, we've got Andrew Clifford. First and probably last sighting of a lesser spotted woodpecker in December. Very nice. He's down in Woking. That's, a, that's family to me, Andrew. So hello, Andrew. <laughs> so there we go. So I think we should probably share ours. Do you want to go first, Neil? No, because I've got to remember mine. <laughs> I didn't write them down. Can't be much highlight then if you can't remember no, them. No, it's, it's, it's which ones I've got to pick. <laughs> Oh, well, I've got five. Go on then. So, uh, but they're not all UK ones. Um, <laughs> we'll let you off. We'll let you off. But I'll I'll go with the UK ones first. And I think probably the biggest highlight had to be not one, but two fox families with a total of five cubs between them in the garden. Not my garden here where I live, but actually in my parents' garden. And we actually got to see them occasionally during the day. Obviously, you know, mums felt quite relaxed and safe, but lots of camera trap footage of the cubs playing and destroying the water fountain in the pond. But yeah, I mean, that was a massive highlight. It just shows that you really can kind of have amazing wildlife in your garden. And then two that were actually from from home, uh, from here, right here in Froome, small blue butterflies in the garden yet again. Absolutely amazing. And actually, first for us, red kites over the house. And that's been several times. And the last one was actually just before Christmas. So that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I see them regularly anyway, but to actually have them over the house in Froome now is really, really cool. And then the other two, which were actually in Switzerland, because our regular listeners know I was actually away for about eight weeks in the summer. I, I went to Switzerland for seven weeks uh, to be with my husband. And I got to see my first ever natterjack toad. I've never seen one in the UK but I got to see one in Switzerland and it was a little toadlet and there were lots of them and they were super, super cute. And also it had to be as well, the orchids got to see up in Andermatt in Switzerland. So kind of up at altitude on, on the side of the mountains, up um, some frog orchids, I think vanilla orchids, orchids I've never seen before, just in their 
hundreds if not thousands that was absolutely amazing so i think they have to be my kind of wildlife nature highlights for 2021 some good choices there pressure's on neil well uh your turn i'll start with just as we were they eased off the lockdown rules after winter i had a week or so of the best views of adders i've ever had so good i actually took an old college friend and her children to go and see adders because he's snake mad that that's how reliable they got i must have been there five six times which is coincided when i was on furloughs that was quite good a bit later on i finally got tiger beetles green tiger beetles that is after years of trying to get photos i got one sitting still and even got stacked images it was just mind-blowingly good i saw that woodchat shrike i'm gonna have to uh a copy of one of our listeners there that would have tried it was pretty good and also the distinguished jumping spider finally finding that after five attempts a few of them this year <laughs> that was quite good thanks uh to tom bradford there for uh the assist i say the assist he found it <laughs> um and seeing all those rare crickets and the cockroach uh, in dungeness in september that was pretty good too but you know what my highlight's gonna be don't you vic don't hate me it's got feathers. Mm. It's got a big wingspan. Mm. It was that ruddy albatross. <laughs> the black brown albatross. That was... It was a freaking albatross. <laughs> hey, I saw I saw the black brown albatross as well. I, I don't know if it counts because it's a little needle felted one that sat on my bookcase. But yeah, as close as I got to seeing it. <laughs> well, it might be back next year. You never know. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's just... That was just kind of one of those surreal, never thought it to happen moments. So, I but mean, I, on, it on, on for quite a long time, didn't it? It did. Yeah, that's right. Honorary mentioned to European roller because that was just ridiculously blue and shiny and over the top coloured as well. But yeah, and there's a story about a crazy old lady that goes with that as well. But maybe I'll save that for another episode. <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up. I'm sure. I'm sure I've forgotten something. But I had lots of. I did quite well. It all petered out of the last few months of the year. I didn't really get out very much, but I had some good sightings. I can't complain about last year, really, especially considering all the situation that's been going on last year. Yeah, hopefully I'll get a few good sightings this year. Just see what happens mm. in this year. I, th- I think my sightings will be down considerably this year, sadly. But I don't know. You get small blue and bee orchid in your garden. You never know what else might turn up. That is true. I do now have common spotted orchids in, in the garden as well. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> I was pleased about the teas all going in mine. <laughs> there we go. Right. Well, we're going to move on to the main topic of our episode, which is the wonderful water lice. I'll give you one guess who picked this topic. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> and got I got a bit carried away with the research, didn't I, Vic? Um, I have had like two months to do it. <laughs> you, you did. And to be fair, you probably know these better oh, than yes. most people that I know I mean you know we, we know how much you love them so um, yeah Neil has gone a bit bit kind of I went deep into the scientific literature deep deep into it and because this is is more Neil's thing he's he's going to do most of it um, yep. so you can kick us off Neil right well we'll start off so the water louse is if you go into your pond even this time of year especially if it's a bit mild and shine a torch down you might see so it looks like a wood louse crawling around on the bottom and that will no doubt be a water louse or a wood louse that's fallen in but let's not go into that <laughs> so, which is possible and they can survive a little while under the wood lice so 
the reason they look like woodlice is because they kind of are woodlice. Well, more technically, woodlice are waterlice, or isopods, to give them their correct scientific term, which is a group of the crustaceans, which is the group that obviously has crabs, lobsters, shrimps, all that sort of thing in them, which is mainly marine. So, you know, woodlice are the odd ones, really, because they live on the land. And waterlice are the freshwater isopods in the UK. There are four species. There's Acellus aquaticus, or the two-spotted waterlouse, or water hoglouse, as it's sometimes called. This is the probably the most common one, and the one you're most likely to have in your pond. There's also Proacellus meridinus, which is the one-spot waterlouse, which is still fairly widespread, but not quite as common as the two-spotted Acellus aquaticus. So, but we'll come a bit more into the relationship between them two a bit later in the episode. There's also Proacellus cavaticus, which, as you may guess from the name, is actually a cave-dwelling species. And there's a fourth species. It used to be Acellus, but they've changed it to Canocintotia communis, which is an American species that's only found in one lake in Northumberland. So that's the four species. As I mentioned, the two most common are the first two I mentioned, which is Acellus aquaticus, the two-spotted waterlouse. And you can identify that most of the time by the two power spots on the back of its head segment. And you'll be shocked to hear that the Proacellus meridinus, the one-spot waterlouse, has just one long, wide spot at the back of the head. And I don't know why I'm doing hand gestures for my head to show you, because you can't <laughs> see what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just wondering how close you actually have to get to these to be able to see the spots. Well, if you get them out in a pot, you can usually see it, especially if you've got a magnifying glass. So it's not it's not too hard to in a pot. But you have to be a bit careful, because it's not 100% reliable. And to really be 100% sure, you have to get a male and look at its front leg under a microscope, because it's a distinctive shape. So that's... Technically, if you're doing scientific recording, you have to do that, which probably means taking a specimen. Now, these guys can't really swim. They sort of just sink if you drop them in the water, wiggling the legs around. But you'll see them crawling around the bottom, all over the plants and dead leaves and stuff in the pond. As I've mentioned, they're roughly woodlouse-shaped, but they're a bit more elongate and not so rounded. They're a bit more sort of flattened on the top. They're a bit narrower and they've got less um, armour. So whereas a woodlouse, especially like the peel woodlouse, it's solid armour, isn't it? You know, in segments, but, you know, there's no gaps in between. It's not quite that well armoured. And they have much longer antennae as well. Colour-wise as well, uh, they tend to be a bit more dull brown in colour. And they've got a dark stripe down the middle most of the time. It can vary a bit, so they can be quite dark or they can be really quite pale, especially after they've just molted. And, of course, the cave-dwelling species Procellus gravaticus and there's also a cave dwelling form of Acellus aquaticus that's a two spot one they have no pigment so they're completely white they grow up to 2.5 centimeters long but they're typically near us at one centimeter maybe up to 1.5 centimeters they have seven pairs of thoracic legs which they use to walk around with in addition to the seven pairs of main legs they've got six pairs of legs under the abdomen Five of these are plate-like and function as gills, and the remaining pair sticks out of the large fuse plate that covers the abdomen. So that's the pair you can see sticking out the back. And they've also got another four pairs of smaller legs around the mouth, and they basically act as the mouth parts, sort of, you know, shredding up food. And of course, they've got those long antennae at the front. Now, typically, you find them in still or slow-flowing water, so the slow-flowing bits of streams and rivers, ponds, ditches anywhere where there's water 
pretty much permanently you're going to find them i yeah. have quite a lot of them in my pond they seem to breed like the proverbial rabbits to be honest with you um, but hey you know I, I get a lot of frogs so it's food for the frogs so can't really complain um, and talking about food water lice are widely reported to feed on dead and decaying matter especially leaves one lab study showed they preferred softened part decayed leaves that had been colonized by fungi and they grew faster and were more successful at reproducing when fed on them rather than leaves that had not decayed and another lab study showed fast growth rates feeding on canadian pondweed and decaying oak leaves but slower growth rate from just algae and bacteria and very slow growth rate just sitting through lake sediment they seem to show preference too for dead leaves from certain species and eating certain species of algae it's quite interesting and I certainly know that my parents, we have two ponds and one of them is absolutely just filled and teeming with water lice. And that has a variety of different species of leaf in it. And the other pond, it mainly gets horse chestnut leaves in it and we don't get so many in there. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, they definitely seem to favour the oak leaves. Yeah. Um, it's interesting and in the study I read on all the feeding, they, they also, because I thought they ate a lot of dead animal matter, but they don't seem to do so well on... Just, well, certainly dead ones of their uh, <laughs> of their species. <laughs> they seem to favour the plant matter more. Hmm, it's interesting. But I'm I'm going to kind of give a brief introduction to life cycle, and then Neil's going to go into more details of of aspects of the life cycle. So, Acellus aquaticus, uh, they have two generations a year. Observations of a population in Wales showed that overwintering populations produced young between the period of April and June, and then died off. The young produced grew into adults in the spring summer, breeding around kind of late July to October, with some of these and their young then overwintering and starting the cycle again. This means that those born in spring can breed twice and live for a year, but those born in late summer autumn only live for about nine months, having only bred once. And Procellus meridinus is reported to breed a little later, but follows broadly the same pattern. It's been suggested that as it's a more southerly species, being at the northern end of its range in the UK, it may require warmer temperatures to breed, hence the later start to breeding in spring. So mating begins in February in both species. It peaks in April in spring, and then with the sort of next brood coming in, it peaks again in September, with it all ceasing about November time. Males are actually bigger than the females in most cases, and that's because the larger males practice mate guarding. So they'll climb on the back of the female and they hang on using the leg on the first and fourth pairs, which are specially adapted to grass for females. So he'll pick her up to some degree and won't let anyone else near her. They call this the marriage grasp. So he's carrying around a female. Obviously a female's smaller, so he can basically lift her up and still walk around. And he'll fend off any other males. The female does walk along, but she's, not, she's less cooperative. She gets dragged around. <laughs> Especially if the male decides to move quickly. She can't keep up because he's got longer legs. <laughs> drags around, poor thing. But the female is only available for mating, shall we say, for a 24-hour period, just after they've molted the rear section of their exoskeleton, uh, which, as we'll cover later, they do in two halves, just like in woodlice. So he holds on to her to make sure he's the one holding her and mating with her when she's available. She's also quite vulnerable when she's molted so just like most invertebrates when they've molted the exoskeleton's all soft if she's got a big strong male with his armor over the top of her she may be safer so there's a theory well a hypothesis that that actually helps the female as well so what the male will do is he'll wander around you know if he comes across another water louse he'll touch them with his antennae make sure it's a female and then he'll grab 
the female if it, if it turns out to be one. And sometimes he has to chase her down. So after he's grabbed the female, he turns her over, and if she's carrying eggs that have already been fertilised, he just lets her go. If not, turns her back over again, hooks him with those legs, and then he... We're not quite sure how he does it, but he detects whether she's ready to breed or will be able to breed soon. And I think it might be that he detects the hormones that control molting, so he can tell she's about to molt. And then he knows it's worth gardening or not. And if he thinks it is, he'll hang on to her. But the problem is, some females that are about to molt aren't about to lay eggs, even though you know they might be near adult size. But he still says we'd tell them apart, despite the fact that you know they haven't laid the eggs yet. So maybe there's another hormone going on as well. We're not quite sure. When I say we, I mean the people that have studied these, obviously. <laughs> not me. <laughs> so when they sense the females near molting, they hold on to them for about six to eight days. And then they're only release her once they've fertilised her eggs, which she holds in a pouch. It's not all rough and tumble with him. If, when it's time for her to molt, he'll help her by walking forward. So trying to get the, the rear half of her exoskeleton off, he'll sort of drag her along the ground a bit to help it off, like a true romantic. How gentlemanly of him. <laughs> <laughs> and then once that's off, he flips her half over and mates with her. There we go. <laughs> As Ellie would say on the Wildlife Garden podcast, the sexual antics of the water louse. Of course, once they've mated, she'll retreat off and shelter until the molting's completely finished and the exoskeleton is completely hard. So as part of this molt, the female does, not only does she produce eggs, but she also produces these four large overlapping plates um, to form a brood pouch. And that's sort of right at the base of the front four pair of legs. And she keeps the eggs there. The number of eggs does vary depending on the species, but I'll come to that later. But it's not quite as simple as just the big males grab the females. Because the females do appear to favour the bigger males, or at least the bigger males get the females in the end. The males tend to favour the bigger females. Well, because the bigger females lay more eggs, as we'll see later on. But small males don't do this gardening behaviour, because there's no point, because they could find a female, guard her right up to the point she's about to molt and lay her eggs, and a big male comes along and just barges him off. So what they do is they sort of hang around and wait until they come across a female that's literally just about to molt and they'll quickly jump on top of her and, you know, try and be a bit sneaky. They're the sneaky males you get in a lot of species, basically. But the males, once they've mated, they typically just die off, certainly in spring anyway. But the females will live for two to three months longer till they finish rearing their broods. So the young, as I've mentioned, are carried around as eggs in the pouch under her legs. But the number she carries around in that pouch does vary somewhat. And it is quite closely related to size, it seems. So one study found that in Acellus aquaticus, they averaged about 30 eggs when they're about 5 millimetres long, the females. But a 10 millimetre long female averaged 149. And in Proacellus meridinus, the females maxed out at 7 millimetres, but they averaged 99 eggs. There did appear to be some suggestion that meridinus has more eggs per its size but that also got disputed as well in another paper so i'll move past that a bit the eggs hatch at a lab experiment in as short as 18 days but this observation in the wild suggests it's more like a month or a bit longer it's a typical amount but when you start looking at observations of the spring breeding population, as I've mentioned already, mating can be in February, but you don't find free-living young water lice until May for Acellus aquaticus and June for Proacellus meridinus, which suggests that they can stay in the pouch for a lot longer. That's like three months there nearly, or even longer really, isn't it? But that does suggest that the lower temperatures and the shorter day lengths for slow down or delayed development of the young before they're released. 
all quite fascinating. There'll be a lot of work done on these. And I guess if you have a pond in your own pond, you could probably see the changes that come, I guess, if you have a much warmer spring, especially if you have a smaller pond. Like our pond is quite small, so it warms up quite quickly. If you've got a smaller pond, you know, maybe things happen a lot quicker and a lot sooner if you have a really warm spring. And I guess going into, you know, if you have a really warm summer and then into autumn, I know last year we had huge numbers of water lice in our pond, like phenomenal numbers. Yeah, and they're quite easy to keep captivity as well. So if you wanted to keep some for a few weeks and observe them, they're, they're quite happy with a couple of rotten leaves in a in a jam jar, to be quite honest. On your kitchen window, so you can watch them while you're making your cup of tea in the morning. <laughs> so let's go on to molting. As with all the other crustaceans, they grow when they molt. So this is known as ectodysis, but like wood lice, do this in a way that's unique to isopods. They molt half at a time. So they do the rear end first from the fifth segment down, then they do the front from, from the fourth segment forward a day or so later. But it can it can vary from about eight hours to three days. So there can be quite a bit of variation in that molting time. To shed the rear part, it holds on to some pond weed with the front forelegs and waves the rear half of its body up and down. And it may also walk forward along the weed. So friction from it dragging along the weed pulls the old skin off. And it molts its skin typically every three weeks when growing. But again, that can vary from eight days to about 30 days. Uh, one thing that is characteristic of a Scylus aquaticus, if you any sort of knowledge of freshwater ecology, is they're often associated with polluted water. So you can find them in polluted streams. If you've got them, it doesn't mean your pond or stream is polluted. But if you've only got them or lots of them and not much else, that could be a bad sign. That's Scylus aquaticus that you tend to find in the polluted streams. But Proacellus meridinus, uh, the less common species has not been recorded in organically polluted streams at least and studies have shown that Acillus aquaticus was five times more resistant to hypoxia that's low oxygen and two times more resistant to elevated ammonia levels than Gamerus pulex so that's Gamerus shrimp freshwater shrimp some people might know the freshwater amphipod and they're a bit fussy freshwater shrimps but they're not like super fussy you don't get them in only in clean streams so they're even less fussy than freshwater shrimps which is pretty cool some people might have heard of something called the Biological Monitoring Work Party, which is a system where you give everything you find, so mayfly nymphs, dragonfly nymphs, invertebrates-wise I'm talking about, so they all get a score out of 10. So things like the really fussy stoneflies you only find in the cleanest streams get a 10, and things like worms only get a 2. Well, a water hoglouse, as they call it on the scale, will only get you a free. So it doesn't mean they'll live in a stream that's flowing sewage, but if you've only got them, it doesn't mean your stream's very healthy either. As I've mentioned, Proacellus meridinus is not found in polluted streams, and there has been a theory that in Western Europe that Acellus aquaticus is slowly moving into the habitat of Acellus meridinus and replacing it as we pollute our rivers and streams and ponds more, because Acellus aquaticus is more tolerant of them. Now, there was a study that showed at the beginning of each season there was equal numbers of both species in a lake where they both occurred, but by August and September there was more Proacellus meridinus. But they think that's because, as we mentioned earlier, Proacellus meridinus laid more eggs in July. So it's just almost like a lag effect in the populations. But between September and October, the Acellus meridinus numbers dropped. Well, the Acellus aquaticus went up. So it's probably to do with this. He said they breed slightly later. It's all to do with that. So that might have caused the illusion of one replacing the other. But then another study in the 1950s in Lake Windermere, in the Lake District, looked 
at the different populations and above two meters of depth there was both species with either species dominating depending on what point you stopped at the lake but below two meters Proacellus meridinus was the dominant species but when they checked again in 1960 Proacellus meridinus had almost completely disappeared from the shallow water um, down to two meters in depth so perhaps in some cases it is replacing it but it's not completely in retreat another study showed that they doing quite well colonising some man-made ditches and lakes that were been dug out in the last century so it's still colonising new places as well so it doesn't look like it's going to be pushed out entirely. Yet another study was done and they found that they seem to have similar habitat preferences and tolerances. If they are being replaced they're not entirely sure why although Acillus aquaticus pollution wise at least does seem to be more tolerant of the pollution so maybe it's just us messing everything up as usual. <laughs> That's causing the problem. So you're going to talk about their least favourite people. They're predators, so the things that like to eat them. So Acillus aquaticus is an important part of the diet for many fish, trout, arctic char, whitefish, grayling and perch. And it's also eaten by large invertebrates like diving beetle, adults, um, and larvid, dragonfly nymphs and water scorpions. And I'm pretty sure if you've got birds that come down and bathe in your pond as well, they'll probably take them. And newts. Frogs. Yep. So they're, they're, they're so common frogs can't feed underwater, so they'd have to be near the surface, wouldn't they? Well, the mine seem to just be crawling all over the place. Yeah. So, <laughs> see, I've actually watched a water louse. I've got a photo somewhere, and it's crawling in through the, on the moisture on the top of a marsh frog's head, and makes it close its eye. So they're pretty bra- <laughs> brave or stupid. I don't know. I've actually got a video of one crawling over the back of a water scorpion, and it actually crawls over the back to the front and gets eaten. <laughs> stupid. <laughs> But there you go, you know, they've got those brilliant antennae but can't detect a predator when they crawl over. (laughs) Yeah. Good job they breed so well, isn't it, really? Maybe that's one of the reasons they do breed so well. Yeah, Mm. there we go. Because we've talked a lot about two of the species, but we've not really touched on the other two, have we? So I'm going to take the first one and the reason for that will become quite clear when we talk about where it's found. And that's Procellus cavaticus. This species has entirely lost its eyes and pigmentation. It's a cave dwelling species and so they live in caves and underground water systems and they can be told apart by the shape of the male's first periapod or their their front legs basically. It's the only isopod in the UK that is a stygobite i.e. basically entirely associated with underground caves and other aquatic habitats and it can only be found in the southern areas of the UK such as the limestone cave systems in the Mendip Hills hence why I got this one, because it's where I live, and also in South Wales. Uh, it's typically re- recorded in small numbers in underground streams, pools and wet surfaces, like the film over flowstones in limestone caves and mines. Definitely going to have to go and look after all the years I spent working as a cave guide and in the cave systems of the Mendips. I must have seen them at some point and just not really realised. Yeah, it might look like a power water louse unless you look at them closely, I guess. Yeah. Now, the last species... I'm going to cover is that I'm going to try and do the Latin Cani Sciodatea communis sometimes in old literature referred to as Acillus communis so what happens quite often is they change genus they put them in which is the first part of the name it's actually native to North America it's slightly larger than the two main native species and it's what the British Myriapod and Icepod group website refers to it having a looser more floppy appearance I like that and again, you have to look at this peripod first, you know, the first shape of the first leg on the male to idea it for certain. And it's only found in a place called Bollam Lake in Northumberland, or Bolam, Bolam, Bollam, I don't know. And 
Um, it's also found in one stream that flows out the lake, but only as far as 100 metres away. As far as we know. Hmm. What's interesting is, is it's excluded as Silas Aquaticus from the lake. It appears to have wiped that out and taken over. Probably through competition rather than like eating it or anything, but who knows. First discovered in 1962. It's thriving, doing really well. But as I've said, it doesn't appear to have spread anywhere. But it might have just not been recorded because how many people take a close look at a waterlouse and they find them? Not even me, really. I look to see if it's got two or one spots and that's about it, really. And it seems to, in its native habitat, favour clear water with a substrate of mud or fine gravel um, and large quantities of decaying leaves from trees and shrubs, which it avidly feeds on. And I should say now that a lot of the information I've got is from that British Myriapod and Icepod group website and it's well worth checking out if you're into your woodlice or centipedes millipedes it's a it's a well done website actually it's got all the species illustrated on there and stuff like that and a lot of good information on each group so this is a, a nice introduction to kick the year off to something a little bit different yeah so you can if you've got a pond in your garden or nearby you've almost certainly see some in there that's one reason i picked that one it's a nice group that Pretty much anyone can go find wherever you are in the country. Yeah, And seriously underrated and overlooked, even by myself, I think. So it was great to find out a bit more about them, doing some research. Um, have you got any news, anything you want to share, Vic? Not really, other than anyone that follows me on, or follows certainly my kind of Victoria Hillman accounts or VixPix accounts on Facebook and Instagram, probably will have noticed a post that went up i will not be active on those accounts at all for the duration of 2022 sadly because of the ongoing injury and requiring further surgery my photography is completely on hold for the remainder of this year don't worry though i am staying busy and active and i'm just going to throw myself into my drawing and needle felting instead yeah kind of posting some updates on those so if you want to check any of it out if you look for woolly wildlife on instagram it's all on there or I'm I'm still active on Twitter so I'll still be active on Twitter um, right up probably for the next couple of months or so but that's about all my news I'm afraid nothing overly oh, brilliant exciting brilliant on the uh, not, not the injury bit obviously <laughs> <laughs> the, the, did you notice uh, Maya Bambrick did some needle felting former guest in the show I did it was a little did robin that? that she made wasn't it yeah you're starting saying, I think. I've now got seven birds and I've got three new animals. No, sorry, four new animals to launch in the next few weeks, one of which is actually a marine mammal. No giving it away, Neil, because I know you know what it is. Yeah, I totally remember what you told mm. me. Mm. <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on, some of you might have seen I've launched the Dragonfly Tour. Well, I'm calling it that in the moment. There's a bit of a debate on whether I should call it... How do you pronounce it? Ode- Odinata Tour? Odinata Tour? But, um, Odinato. Yeah, bit Odinato. Yeah, I can't even say it, so I'm going to have to stick with Dragonfly Tour. <laughs> so, um, officially, I'm calling it Dragonfly Tour to appeal to a mass audience, but really it's because I can't say the other <laughs> not, not quite as good as prehistoric, uh, marine prehistoric dolphin dragon dinosaur, or, is it, or dragon dinosaur, <laughs> it's called that, which we'll talk about in the next episode in the news. Uh, I can't, can't remember what it was. It was the best description and worst description I've ever seen of a prehistoric animal. But yes, we might do an episode on the Dragonfly Tour, actually. I'll certainly be doing some update episodes of what I'm getting up to anyway. So more on that on another episode. But I think that's it for now, isn't it, Vic? It is. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly going to be around for the next, hopefully, couple of months. So you will have me for a little bit. And then Neil will be flying solo again, I'm afraid. Sorry, listeners. Yeah, sorry. But um, 
hopefully it will only be for a few months. We'll we'll just kind of have to see how th- how things go and pan out. Oh, also, everyone, go onto YouTube and put forward slash UK Wildlife all one word. Go subscribe to my channel. I've been putting loads of nice videos. I'm doing more video than photography at the moment. So, and I'll put my Dragonfly Tour videos on there as well. Yeah, that's something you can go do. But other than that, that's it from me. See you all next time. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips. The music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.